Welcome to the About, From, and With podcast, a podcast showcasing speech-language pathologists' journeys to finding their passion and purpose in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Danica Pfeiffer. In each episode, we'll learn about, from, and with SLP clinicians and researchers as they share their experiences, advice, and expertise. Hey everyone, today I'm excited to share a conversation that I had with Lauren Laramore. She was actually one of my roommates in grad school, and now she is a speech-language pathologist in Hershey, Pennsylvania. She currently works full-time at the Vista School with elementary school students with autism spectrum disorder. Lauren completed her bachelor's and master's degrees in communication sciences and disorders at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Then she entered the field because she felt very passionate about assisting and building up individuals who do not have a voice. Lauren is also a faculty member of Andrew's Gift, an organization that provides grants to individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder that allows them to access technology and other resources to improve their lives. Lauren shares how she decided that she wanted to be a speech-language pathologist after pursuing a lot of different courses to figure that out. And then once she applied for grad school, she talks about how she was waitlisted and then was eventually accepted into grad school. And then when she started her CF, how she actually switched positions and worked in two different places for her CF. Then she goes on to talk about her work at the Vista School, where she has a very small caseload and that allows her to have more time for collaboration. So she shares some tips for how to collaborate with other professionals that I hope you'll find really helpful. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to follow me on Instagram at danicapeiffer.slp to stay in the loop. You can also follow the podcast to be notified when new episodes launch. Enjoy! Hi Lauren, thank you so much for being here today to share your journey. Hi Danica, you're very welcome. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you. Let's start out with a little bit about you growing up before you started your SLP journey. Yeah, sure. I grew up in Baltimore um, in the county, and I went to a couple of the different private schools there. Um, in elementary school, I, I went to school in the county, and then when I moved into high school, I went to a school in the city called Mercy High School. And I always loved school, and I always knew that I would want to go to college. But in terms of what I wanted to do, <laughs> I never really had like a clear, I definitely want to do this profession when I was growing up. I, for a while, I would say, oh, I wanted to be a teacher. It always seemed to gear around like wanting to, to do things with people, for people. I guess you maybe call them like service industries. I, I was very captured by the idea of doing something in the medical field for a long time. But never anything in particular until I got to college when I started to find my path there. Um, but growing up, I never had a super clear direction of where I wanted to go, but I knew that I loved learning and that I loved school and that that's what I really enjoyed at that time in my life. Great. Then you did go on and you attended James Madison University for your undergraduate degree. At that point, how did you find CSD and get interested in becoming a speech-language pathologist? 
I had quite a journey to find CSD. Um, I started as, I know I was majoring, I can't think of the actual major. I think it was just the, the education for teaching. I wanted to teach high school. So that was my major when I started college. And then I think I had, oh, probably seven different minors throughout my time at JMU as my passions changed. I was at one point pre-law for a year and a half. Um, just really running the gamut of what can I do? What can I learn? How many classes can I fit in? And what can I take? I was really doing a lot of exploring my freshman and sophomore year. And by sophomore year, I had started to kind of feel like, oh, I really need to pick one thing so that I can finish it on time and make sure I'm like taking everything that I need to learn that information well. And when I was looking at degrees, I got really pulled in by the therapies. So JMU has this great class for in the CSD realm for like the intro to communication sciences and disorders. So I took that just to see what it would feel like my sophomore year, what I, what I liked about it, what I didn't. I liked everything about it. I really enjoyed the um, acoustic side of things. I thought it was really interesting how the medical side blends with some of the school side of things, working with kids versus adults. It seemed like a really versatile field to me. Somebody who can't make decisions clearly about what they <laughs> want to do. Um, so I was like, well, this will be a good, this will be good for me. I can, I can make a decision and commit, but still kind of have my lanes wide open. Was there a particular part of the field at that point that was attractive to you working with adults versus working with kids or were you kind of liking everything? I really wanted to work with adults at first. So I have always nannied and I, I love kids. I really enjoy kids, but I didn't think for my job that I wanted to work with kids. I don't know why. I gotcha. work with kids now, so <laughs> it didn't end up that way, but I was really... Um, the, honestly, the best word for it is, is enamored with the idea of working in a hospital, working medically, um, working alongside doctors to improve people's health. So I really got pulled into the idea of working with people who'd sustained a traumatic brain injury. And I ended up doing my thesis in undergrad on that topic and really stayed kind of focused towards the adult side of things until later on in grad school. Then you decided to stay at JMU for your master's. How did that application process go, applying to grad school, and then how did you ultimately make the decision to stay? Oh my goodness. It was a terrible process. And I know you know, because <laughs> um, you were also I met in you their during master's that time. program. Yeah. I know, you did. It. So once you're in, it's fantastic, right? I applied, I think to five different graduate programs when I was an undergrad. And I did get waitlisted at one, and I got waitlisted at JMU as well. So I did not get in off the bat anywhere, which was scary when you sit and commit and you spend like so much time working up towards a goal, and you really want to do this great work in this field that you've fallen in love with, with these people who impress you and think you think the world of, and you're told, you know, it might not happen, is a hard time. So I spent, I think it was like a month on the wait list. But I remember the day, I, I continued to go to JMU's open house. So I was on campus as an undergrad. So I could go to their open houses. And if you're on the wait list, you were invited. Um, so I just continued to express that, like, if I got off the wait list, this is where I would be coming. This is where I want to be. 
and I had connections because I knew all the professors as an undergrad. And I remember the day I got the email that I came off the wait list and was going to be accepted was just the feeling (laughs) that I got to keep going and I get to come back to JMU and be a double Duke and actually have this field for my own was really exciting, kind of unreal. Yeah, I'm sure that was such a relief after all that uncertainty. Yes. I think what you hit on, though, was really important that you showed a lot of interest in the program. And I think there's a lot of people that this happens to where they don't initially make it into programs and they might be on wait lists just like you were. And I think that piece of showing interest in the program and really voicing that and showing up to the open houses if you can go, I think that's really important for people to know. I think so too. I th- Our field is awesome because it really somehow pulls in the, the greatest in type A personality. <laughs> so I know my whole class, it just seemed like everybody was doing all of these amazing things and how, how could I ever compare? And oh my gosh, I can't believe that. How did they get a 99 on that test? It was so hard. I don't know. It just, it's such a comparing game. But when it comes down to it, at least for me and my experience, um, what really mattered were the connections that I made within my department, but also like my own commitment to wanting to go there. With my other school that I got waitlisted to, I also wrote a letter just to say like, I would be interested in coming here if I were to come off the wait list, just, just reaching out to make sure that, that they know that you are interested and you're not just a name on the list to them was important for me. It's, it's a competitive process. It is. I think that's great advice. I hadn't heard of that before to write a letter, a personal letter to them, even after, you know, the application process is over when you're on the wait list to, to show that interest. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but I think that's great advice. Yeah, I, it was just something I tried. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm one of those type A personalities. I was on all the threads. What can I do? How can I get off this wait list? What numbers should I be getting? Should I be retaking my GRE? I, I mean, it was it was a bit of a rabbit hole, but it all turned out great in the end. It did, but it is a stressful time. And I think you're not the only one. There's a lot of people that go through similar experiences. What kind of clinical experiences did you have during grad school? I had, JMU has a clinic on campus, so I worked there. In your first year, you do sessions, essentially just with clients that come to the clinic. I worked there for that year, and then the the summer in between, my first and second year of graduate school, we had the opportunity to be a part of a summer camp that JMU was holding. Um, They had two. There was one for students who were working on articulation, and then there was one for students um, diagnosed with autism. And I got placed in the autism camp, which was very intimidating for me. I didn't know anything about working with students with autism or children with autism. And the first thing that we talked about after being placed in that camp was how to manage challenging and aggressive behavior. And I was like, oh, I'm not interested in this. Very intimidated. It was frightening for me to start. But then from the first day on, I I loved it. I just thought it was fantastic. The way that the camp ran, it was like half days. So we got um, one client. I can't remember the time ranges, but one client for half of the camp and then another client for the next half. And we would work with them. I think it was a couple weeks. 
and then switch. So we really got to know, it was like being a camp counselor and a speech therapist. There were occupational therapists there too. Really got to build a relationship, which was really cool uh, to get to know this this kiddo, what, what he liked, what he enjoyed, and then see how to build in his areas of need, therapy techniques to address those given what he liked. I, I thought it was a really cool experience. After that, I started my my actual internships and I did one at Augusta Health, which is a hospital near JMU. And at that placement, I was in the home health side, in the outpatient clinic, and I did some of the inpatient. So I got a little bit of everything, which was really exciting and cool because that's when I realized I did not want to work in a hospital and that it was way too high pace of a life for me, uh, that I did not enjoy it, that it was a little too stressful. And then my second and last internship in grad school was at a school called the Forbush School in Maryland. It was for students with emotional disturbance. And some of my caseload also had autism spectrum diagnosis. Wow. So it sounds like you had a lot of varied experiences. I knew that I wanted to try everything. I mean... It's funny, it's kind of emerging as a pattern here, isn't it? (laughs) I like to (laughs) get my hand in a lot of different pots. Um, So I wanted to see what it would be like to work with adults in this this kind of setting, in this one, kids here. And I, I think that was really helpful. I know some people go into grad school like knowing what they want to do, and I think that's great. I was not one of them. I thought I knew what I wanted to do, but through like exploring different things, I really found what I enjoyed, which was ended up being working with with students in a school. And I think that's really important. That's the time to do it, to try everything. You have access to working in all these different environments and learning about them, all these different settings, and you have mentors to help you learn and guide you. So I think that's good that you did that and really tried a bunch of different kinds of settings. If you could go back and give yourself some advice during graduate school, knowing what you know now, what would it be? I think I'd tell myself not to work towards the moment that I don't have to be observed anymore. I think there was a lot of that when I was in grad school, like, oh, I just can't wait until my professors aren't watching me through this camera and then giving me feedback right after. Uh, I can't wait until I'm just like doing my own thing and I have my own practice and I, or, you know, I'm working my own job and I'm, I'm not having somebody hover over me because what I've realized is there's always somebody <laughs> with you. If it's not a staff member who works with the student that you're working with learning how what you do, it's uh, I've had a graduate student now. It's an undergraduate student observing to learn about what you do. It's your CF mentor. It's, you know, the list goes on. It's, it's, a, it's an observationally based field. You're always going to have people with you and watching you and it should keep you on your toes. So don't work towards that moment. I think there was a lot of that for me in grad school where I was like, I can't wait for that part to be done. Gotcha. And maybe it sounds like it changes over time, the kinds of observations that are being done, but it sounds like you're saying to stay stay present, stay in the moment, try to learn everything that you can. And then it sounds like as your career goes on, it becomes more about teaching and having people observing you to learn from you. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's look at it as an opportunity either to learn or to teach and you'll never resent it. At least I don't anymore. Especially you first in the beginning, you were saying how you just love to learn. And so it sounds like for you, that is a really nice fit. It is. 
After graduate school, you started your clinical fellowship in Pennsylvania. Did you know at that point what kind of setting you were looking for for your clinical fellowship, or were you applying broadly to different kinds of opportunities? I was applying for pediatric. Now, I will say pediatric because I did apply to um, the Children's Hospital as well, but I, I was mostly applying for early intervention and school jobs. It took me some time to get going. I graduated in, in May of 2017, and I got officially hired into my CF in January of 2018. So it took me about half a year to get settled, but I was also moving states and trying to get my Pennsylvania provisional license, um, which was a difficult task. I had a lot of trouble navigating that and looking up how to do it and and what exactly I needed. In Pennsylvania, you also have to have this educator certification um, that has a lot to do with mandated reporting, and, and that was difficult to find information on. So I uh, had a bit of a gap while I was trying to navigate all of that while I was applying, and I actually ended up signing a contract through Metascan, which is a staffing agency, and then they found me my position. They got me um, a, a couple different interviews, and then I ended up interviewing and accepting at the intermediate unit. Do you have any advice for others that are going through that process of looking for a CF in a new area? I would say call anyone that you need information from. Okay. I <laughs> I had a lot of trouble. I think state boards do not have good websites and they usually have great people answering the phone in my experience. My husband and I got married that year and we, we weren't sure exactly where his job was going to take him and I hadn't settled yet. So I was just kind of going to look where he was looking. And it was difficult to find information that was actually written down, but great to call people and talk. That That's what helped me the most. Great. So you started off with your CF, and then I know you ended up switching CF locations. Can you talk about that a little bit? I did. And the pattern emerges again. I have to do many things to reach one goal and make it complicated <laughs> on myself. Um so my contract was up. I worked with the Capital Area Intermediate Unit, which is early intervention for kids. Uh, my caseload was like two, three, and four-year-olds. And they were all between multiple daycares. So it was actually a lot of travel. I, I, didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't love the driving, how much time I was spending in the car versus how much time I was actually providing therapy and, and learning how to be a speech therapist. It, it just wasn't the setting for me. It just didn't really work out. So when my contract was up in May, I decided not to sign again to finish my CF with them. And I actually had a job offer from the Vista School, which is where I am now, that was going to let me start pretty much right away. So I did literally exactly half of my CF with the intermediate unit. And then I started at the Vista School and finished it that November. Were there any challenges with switching mentors or changing sites as you transitioned from one to the other? It really wasn't difficult. There's a form you have to fill out for your your mentor. Your mentor has to fill out, and I just had to have two of them because there were two of them. That was it. It really wasn't complicated. And again, I did call ASHA when I did that because I wanted to make sure yes. <laughs> that I had everything I needed, and they were all, they also had a great phone line and everything went off without a hitch. That's so great. So it sounds like for others that maybe are finding that one site isn't working out so much for them in that first year that it is possible to switch 
and explore another kind of work setting. It flowed pretty seamlessly. So I would say if you're having some thoughts about wanting to switch, don't let the complicated paperwork stop you because there, there wasn't any. Not in Pennsylvania. Today, you are still working at the Vista School. Can you tell us about this school and what makes it so unique? It's for students with autism, so you have to have an autism spectrum diagnosis to attend. And we get students, essentially, that are not making progress within their home district. So if a student is not making progress within their district and they have an autism diagnosis, they are eligible to be screened by us to possibly come to VISTA. The great thing about that is that then the school district pays for the student to come. So it's, it is a private school, but it's not private as in the parents have to pay or, you know, shell out all this extra money just to get their student in an education. It's, it's considered as if the student was still being taken care of by their home district. Well, that's great. That sounds like a great option for parents to have. What does a typical day look like for you? Uh, there isn't one. <laughs> I So I will say the students arrive at the same time every day and they leave at the same time. But other than that, we do follow a classroom structure. So each classroom will have like a schedule. Then I will try to work my therapy schedule around to be in the classroom in times that it makes sense to see the student. So each of my classrooms, I work in two different classrooms in the elementary school, have a communication block. So I'm almost always in both of my rooms during their communication block. And during that time, I would be working with my student. Um, They might be learning a form of alternative and augmentative communication, PECs, or working on an iPad application to communicate. They might be learning adapted sign. We would really target that during that center. Um, But beyond that center, the staff in that room have been trained to run those targets all day. So that's really probably the most unique thing about VISTA is that the multidisciplinary team, which here at VISTA is the teacher, the speech therapist, the occupational therapist, and the behavior consultant, work with and train all of the staff in the classroom, which we call behavior technicians here, to be able to implement any any targets and programming that they've written for students across the day so that students are getting exposure, whether I'm in the room or not, to their communication which is fantastic and can lead to a lot more steady progress. That's amazing. That is wonderful that everyone is on the same page. I think that doesn't happen in a lot of settings. We really try to make sure that everybody knows what a student needs to be working on and what the student's goals are that year. Now, it it becomes a lot of people. So we, we do a lot of training and coaching. That might look like a staff sitting with me for one of my centers and watching and seeing how I implement targets with a student. It might look like having a meeting in the morning and going over how I would want someone to set up a requesting opportunity. Uh, It just kind of depends on what what needs to happen. But it's, it's highly emphasized here at VISTA that everybody should be trained and coached on what the students need to be successful. So it sounds like you all train and coach each other, the other professionals. Is that right? Yes. That's great. So you're always learning together. Again, always <laughs> always <laughs> learning. Yes, it's, it's a great environment for collaboration, which, and I might just be thinking of that based off of my first experience here in PA when I was at the intermediate unit. I, I kind of breezed over this, but I 
drove, oh, it felt like oh, I was in the car half the day, trying, just trying to get to the daycare my student was at. So there was not time to see their occupational therapist. I might send them an email if I thought of something that might be good to, to chat about as a whole team. But I didn't sometimes know what the occupational therapist was doing. Right. It, it was, it's hard. It's very difficult. My caseload was also quite high. I think, I think it was, a, I mean, high. It was at 56, which, you know, is, is fairly, it's a lot of students to see in one week. And then to fit in collaborative meetings, it just doesn't happen. Here at Vista, though, our schedule is arranged to have to meet with each other. I can walk down the hall and see my student's behavior consultant, occupational therapist, and teacher in the space of a minute. You know, like we're all in the same building, which really facilitates us working together. That's amazing that you have these times built in for collaboration. I'm curious, are there any other kinds of administrative supports that are in place so that this training and this coaching can happen? It sounds like maybe there's some shared scheduling times. Is there anything else that on an administrative level they do or encourage you all to do so that you can collaborate and share information? We're encouraged to meet as a multidisciplinary team every week for an hour. So that's just the teacher, the OT, the BC, and the SLP. What do those meetings typically look like? They look different based on the day. So if we have an IEP coming up, we, we focus pretty heavily on that student. One of my teams, they really like to go around and try to talk about every student during that meeting. So we might say, okay, now let's talk about so-and-so. Oh, he's, he's having some trouble right now in the classroom with his teacher goal to attend to materials. And we might just bring up some things that we've noticed from that week or progress that's gone on, any revisions in the IEP we think need happen. It, it depends on how the student is doing. And then I have another team who likes to have an agenda. So we might say like, oh, we really want to talk about these four students this week. We'll, we'll probably talk about the next three next week, but we'll focus on these, these four. That's great. And it makes sense that it would change and be different depending on the needs at the time. You mentioned before that your caseload was pretty high when you were doing the early intervention setting. What does your caseload look like in this setting? Currently, I have a caseload of 15, which is wonderful. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Here at Vista, um, they put therapists between two rooms, and each room has seven students. Right now, one of my students has, one of my rooms has eight students, so I do have 15. It allows for that time to collaborate, to write programming, to actually probe different things for this student and, and not feel like I'm just running around providing therapy, and now I have the last half hour of my day to write notes. When did I even sit and think about my course of intervention? I didn't. You know, it, it allows for that time to sit and actually plan. That's amazing. And it sounds like you're in a really supportive environment too, which is important to be able to make all of this happen. It was a great place to learn. I think it's, it was really hard at first to come in and coach staff and other professionals when I was just a fellow and I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. Right. You're still learning. (laughs) Well, I guess this is what I'm doing. So I can tell you that, that you're doing it. And if my mentor tells me there's a better way to do it, I'll update you. (laughs) (laughs) But you, you kind of grow into that. I think that is one thing that you only get better at doing if you do it. How did you establish relationships with these other professionals that you're collaborating with on a daily basis? Was there any 
team building that had to happen or did things kind of unfold naturally? How did that work when you were just starting to meet them and work with them? Well, we, we meet with each other so frequently that, that, that did just kind of develop naturally. Vista does do some, some team building. We might play a game on, on the morning before we start our meetings or things like that. But honestly, I feel like I've developed relationships most by working alongside some of these other professionals and achieving goals together running IEPs and, and talking with parents at IEPs together, navigating a difficult time in a student's, in a student's life together. I think that's where I've made like relationships that actually last and that we feel like we can be real with each other when we're explaining why we're recommending something or that we really like know each other and know how each other operates. It's just, it, it takes a little bit of time and it takes time actually working alongside. That makes sense. I'm curious, what does parent communication look like in this kind of setting? And are your parents actively involved in what you're doing? How do you all share information back and forth? That's a great question. And it kind of depends on my family, of the different families. With the pandemic, I got to know my families better than I ever knew my families because we were uh, using Microsoft Teams to do virtual sessions. So the parent would join and I would talk them through what I would uh, how I would integrate their target into their home environment and we would try it out. And I, that was a really, it was a really difficult time. It was very hard pivot for me, but it was fantastic to better understand my students' home life and their home dynamic. And ever since then, we've had an increase in a lot of parents who want to continue those meetings, video meetings, or just like a monthly phone call to actually meet with the whole team and hear about what their student is, is doing because they were getting a lot of that over the pandemic. Now, I also reach out at least twice a month with updates to my parents. So, hey, this is how he's progressing on his IEP goal. This is where I would be uh, focusing on next. This is what you could be doing at home. It's looking really good at school. This is how we taught it. Let me know if you have questions. That's, that's typically what it looks like. And is that something that each of your team members will do separately, or is this kind of an update as a whole on all the IEP goals? Typically, it's separate. So we would reach out separately with our with our progress. Now that that meeting that I mentioned, what parents are really enjoying, it seems like, is is these team reach outs where we're all getting on a call and giving updates as a team, which is, and I I understand why it's it's very helpful to parents and I think they feel really looped in. It, it is difficult to find the time sometimes <laughs> to always get, get to all of those meetings, especially now that we're back on the school schedule. What, during the pandemic, we were kind of in a fairy tale land of scheduling. You know, you <laughs> just felt like there were different hours in the day. So that, that part has been a little bit more difficult in terms of making sure that we have the time to do everything that we need to do. But very important. And it, it, it does seem to help with progress. If the parent knows what you're doing and can do it the same way you're doing it, why wouldn't you arrange for that? Absolutely. And I think it just gets to those barriers that you're talking about of time where SLPs might feel like they just can't do that. It's not feasible. <laughs> right. What advantages have you noticed for the children that you work with at the Vista School compared with maybe a typical 
um, public school setting where your caseload might be 50, 60, 70 children compared to 15 that you have here, how do you feel like this translates to the children and the families that you're working with and the what they're able to take away from the, their therapy and support? Sure. I, I've never worked in an actual public school, so I, I don't know on that side. But in terms of the caseload size, having a smaller caseload that you can dedicate more intervention planning to, uh, more direct therapy time to, more time to collaborating with the team and the, and the family, I think that absolutely shows in, I mean, I, I hate to say the speed of progress, but sometimes it's speed, how quickly they will acquire new skills. It's more so generalization. Can, can they do this across all of their different teachers here at school? Can they do it at home in an environment where I've never stepped in and, and taught them? Do they carry it over? So I, I do feel like we do that as, as best as we can. Now, generalization is a really tough thing for, for students with autism spectrum disorder. So it, it's a big hurdle. I'm not saying all of my students do that beautifully, but it, it definitely is facilitated here at VISTA in a way that I, I didn't have experience with in my first placement. Great. Yeah, it sounds like you would see progress so much quicker when you have all of these different professionals working on this skill and having the families so in tuned with what's going on. It feels like a really great place for the children to grow. I mean, as with all kids and, and professionals listening to this, you'll, you'll find this when you enter the field, the family's support system is huge. And what the family wants out of it is what they'll get out of it. So if you have parents who are super invested and interested in hearing what you're saying, take full advantage. Cause I mean, you know, some families aren't able to, to implement at home that they might work long hours and and they don't have time to sit and work on therapy. But if, if there are parents who want to do that, do it. Cause you'll see, the most progress that you will see doing that than any other intervention that I've tried. What advice do you have for school-based SOPs that may want to work more collaboratively? Maybe they don't have these meeting times set up and they do have a little bit of a larger caseload. How would you advise them to start collaborating with other professionals if that's something that they want to do? I think that is going to be so situation specific that my, my only advice would be to, to ask people, you know, things don't, things don't happen unless you reach out and, and try to set them up. So, Hey, I, on Thursdays, I'm usually pretty free at the end of my day. I usually have an hour. Are you ever free on Thursdays? Maybe we could get together and talk about any kids that we have in common on our caseload. I do think that reaching out, talking to probably administration to like allow for more ability to do that and putting that in the, in the idea of it's for the students on our caseload need collaboration between us in order to progress. You know, I, I put it in those kinds of terms. Yeah. I think you're hitting on some great things. I think just reaching out and trying to form a relationship, just talking about, like you said, kids that you both see is a great start. And just starting with one person, you know, you're very fortunate in that you have a bunch of professionals in your classrooms, but really just starting out with one person and not feeling like you have to put together an entire team that you collaborate with each week. I think that is a great way to start. Absolutely. I mean, you, you'll laugh at yourself sometimes. Sometimes you're working against each other without even knowing it. I remember my first 
couple weeks starting here at Vista, I was teaching a student to appropriately gain attention. So I was hoping to move them into the ability to stand up from their desk and walk over to their teacher, tap them on the arm, and then make a request, as opposed to getting up and running towards something that they want and and grabbing it or, you know, what have you. (laughs) And it turned out that the behavior consultant was working on that student remaining in their seat for a certain duration. So we (laughs) we were working against each other for two goals that were great, like those are targets that this, you know, a student has to maintain a certain amount of time at the desk attending the materials to learn skills. They also have to be able to stand up and maintain their skills on their feet to appropriately communicate, to appropriately interact with their environment. So we were working against each other there. And once we realized it, we were able to tailor our programming and our coaching to accommodate both of those skills. But if we hadn't been talking, we wouldn't have known that we were teaching the student to like when he stands up, her error correction was, oh, you need to, you need to sit back down in your seat and, and ask to leave. And in my program, the teacher was getting up and walking away and expecting the student to get up and come. Oh, so, I love that example. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's things like that, that you, you don't realize that you're working maybe against each other sometimes in a very well-meaning way when you kind of have to chat and know what each other are doing. Even just quick updates between professionals, I think, can be helpful sometimes. Definitely. Definitely. I think communication is really at the heart of this. And being able to collaborate effectively means being able to communicate effectively and share information. And like you said, even if you are in a position where you have a high caseload, just having those quick updates, even if it's in an email, just quick updates about what you're noticing about the child. It takes a couple extra minutes, but it can go a long way, especially if you're in a situation like you were, where you were targeting great skills, but in opposing ways that mm-hmm. might prevent the child from making progress quicker. So I love that example. You've shared so much great information in this setting that you work in sounds really stimulating and really supportive of the children that you work in. So I bet it's just so rewarding for you. It is really great to work in a place where I feel like I can devote the time that I need to, to the interventions that I want to implement. I hope that someday more, more environments, more settings can be as supportive as what you're witnessing We're going to wrap up here with some final rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. The first one is, what is one resource that you use in your practice that you couldn't live without? I I recently did a training with, through Pyramid for PECS, the Picture Exchange Communication System, and I use that manual all the time. So I'm going to have to say the PECS manual. Great. What has been a defining moment in your SLP journey as you reflect on all of these experiences? Getting my C's, I think, was a big moment for me. Oh, and and honestly, having my first graduate student and seeing that come full circle for me, remembering what it was like to be a graduate intern myself and and sitting back and, and seeing somebody take on the field and, and start to learn and, and really grow into themselves as a, as a clinician was really very cool experience. I'm sure that's been really rewarding. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that part of my job. What is one thing on your professional bucket list? 
I mean, classic me, it's, it's different every week stuff that I want to do. I've, I've thought about going back for my PhD and then I think, you know, I'll never do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I don't know. I think for me, like a a bucket list moment for, for my career would be to continue to be able to facilitate other people entering the field, which isn't really a moment, but that, that's, that's what I really have enjoyed in the past couple of years is uh, meeting undergrads who are in CSD, meeting graduate students who want to be, you know, doing what I'm doing and helping them feel like they can do that. That's great. The last one is what is your favorite part of your job? Oh, working with the kids is the best (laughs) part. It was the part about the pandemic that was so sad. It's like you want to just jump through your computer screen and be like, it's fine. I'll I'll do my session. Here I am. And oh, just sitting there with a student and seeing in front of your eyes them start to use a picture icon to communicate or the first time that they independently initiate a sign. It's just, it's a special, it's a special thing to see somebody learn to value people, which I feel like is what we're really teaching with communication. It's like people are your friend and you want you want to know them and you want to get things from them and you want to talk to them, however talking looks for you. That's awesome. Wow. This has just been such a joy to talk with you and hear about your journey and all of your experiences and how this love of learning has led to what sounds like such a fulfilling career for you. Yeah, it's been great to talk with you too. Thank you for inviting me. I loved it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I loved talking to Lauren about collaboration. It's one of my favorite things to research and to talk about. And so this was really a joy for me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. I encourage you to follow the podcast so you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Please also consider leaving a review of the podcast. I'd love to hear what you think. And it also helps others find the podcast. You can find the show notes and transcripts at aboutfromandwith.com. And connect with me on Instagram at danicapiper.slp. Until next time, stay humble and kind.